Hey there, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Prayerfully Woke. You are listening to season number three, episode number eight, where we interview Mike Morell, talking all about the Trinity today, talking all about the doctrine of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how that impacts our lives, how that impacts our understanding of God and the world around us. This episode today is deep. This episode today is challenging thought-provoking, all of the above. Mike Morell does a great job of uh, talking to us about the Trinity, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Without further ado, on to the episode. Oh, the Trinity um, is a, a almost like a hologram of this paradox of the one and the many, and how we as, as Christians confess that we're monotheistic, but we're not monotheistic in the exact same way that our Jewish and Muslim friends are, where they have, you know, more of a, a straightforward monotheism. We have this weird claim that God is three in one. And like, why is that? Yo, this is Walker McCallan. And I'm Jonathan Garlock. And we are Prayerfully Woke. All right, so Mike, we are uh, super glad to have you on the podcast today. Uh, folks, thank you for listening in. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation today, hopefully about uh, – hopefully it's a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I think it will be. Uh, we're going to be talking today about the Trinity. Um, before we get into that, though, I'm going to ask uh, Mike, our guest, Mike Morell, if he will um, introduce himself and, and tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Sure, happy to. So, yeah, my name is Mike Morell, and I'm uh, – husband and a dad and a human being, and I also uh, write some. I, I enjoy writing at the intersection of spirituality and culture and sustainable living. I'm a freelance journalist. I do some work in a field called strategic foresight or futures studies, and probably a lot of folks know me because I'm the collaborating writer with Father Richard Rohr on a book called The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. Awesome, Michael. It's such a privilege to to have you on, and we hope to figure out everything there is to know <laughs> about the Trinity in about a 45-minute podcast. Do you think this is possible, Mike? Oh, good. I mean, what are we going to do after the break? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so, Mike, obviously you mentioned that you have been uh, collaborating with Father Roar on uh, the book The Divine Dance, uh, which for all the audience out there, if you haven't, uh, read that yet go pick up a copy it, it, it's an amazing book um, with a lot of great insight in there um, but what I want to start off with maybe in this discussion here is uh, Mike how did you growing up view uh, the Trinity and maybe we could start there and then we'll, we'll transition then into how you view it uh, now mm, yeah I mean probably how I viewed it growing up was as little as possible. You know, it's just such a confusing idea in, in many respects, or at least it can be. You know, I grew up in a pretty conservative evangelical background, you know, came to faith, had a, had a born-again experience, got saved at the ripe old age of four years old in a Southern Baptist church. And a few years after that, followed my parents to an independent Pentecostal church where we experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and with, with speaking in tongues, a fire, <laughs> yes. and, um, and then a few years after that, for various reasons, when I was a teenager and my parents kind of stopped going to church, I ended up drifting into this um, 
conservative uh, PCA Presbyterian church for, for a little while, kind of the, the Calvinist realm of things. And I suppose at the time, I probably would have answered you that I experienced a kind of proto-Trinitarianism in those three denominations, that like the, uh, the Baptists were really doers and they were really focused on Jesus. There was sort of this, you know, Jesus emphasis to, to a certain, through a certain lens and to a certain degree. And of course, in the Pentecostal world, we were all about the you know, activity and the power of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the Holy Spirit. And Presbyterians uh, saw themselves as really, uh, really sticking up for, for God the Father, which they you know, saw through this very sort of Old Testament lens. They're like, you know, God the Father gets a bad rap these days, but we're all about some wrath and law. Um, so... You know, in its own highly imperfect way, <laughs> I would say that I, you know, experienced these different emphases on, on different persons of the Trinity. And, uh, of course, you know, in all these contexts, doctrinally, there was, you know, it was important to believe in the Trinity. In fact, you know, I was always a nerd. I was always, like, you know, trying to get into the weeds of things. And so when we were part of an Assemblies of God church during my Pentecostal years, I learned that, you know, the Assemblies of God were, were Trinitarian Pentecostals as opposed to Oneness Pentecostals, that there was yeah. actually this kind of big uh, break after some of the early uh, Azusa Street revivals and, you know, early mm -hmm. Kansas City revival, even before that, and that, you know, those revivals were way more sort of action-oriented, not particularly doctrinally oriented, and folks received a lot of prophetic words, a lot of visions, and some folks in those movements began to see this, this new revelation that Jesus was the Father, uh, mm. and there was no, you know, no difference that, that there, there was, you know, Jesus was the Father. Technically, it would be called modalism uh, in, a, in a theological uh, lexicon, and so it actually began to be a big thing where amongst some Pentecostals, they, even if they were baptized in some other tradition as a kid, if they were baptized or younger in life, if they were baptized in a Trinitarian formula, name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, the oneness Pentecostals taught that that was wrong, that you needed to be baptized in Jesus' name only. In Jesus' name, yeah. 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 yeah, because Jesus was the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was actually a trick question that only, <laughs> uh, only the 20, early 20th century Pentecostals figured out. Uh, so you have this you know, growth of, of Pentecostal holiness, and it's such an interesting thing, right? Because I find that a lot of times when, when religious movements say that they have this like secret new revelation, it comes hand in hand with greater uh, moralism or sort of a, a holiness code that's externalized. So while the Assemblies of God were no, you know, no huge grace junkies themselves, uh, I did have some oneness Pentecostal friends, and they were not allowed to wear, you know, short sleeve shirts. Women were not allowed to go out in anything but dresses. Makeup was highly frowned upon. There were like these very, you know, specific things where they interpreted being a peculiar people as being less about the content of their character and more about the way that they dressed themselves. So. I learned early on that we were Trinitarian Pentecostals and not those, you know, not those heretical oneness Pentecostals. And I read some of the oneness Pentecostal material about why we were heretical Trinitarian Pentecostals. And, uh, you know, and I actually had a work buddy who was oneness and we would, uh, you know, always have these debates 
uh, at work. And I just saw his beliefs, though, making him miserable. Uh, it did not seem to really be producing much fruit in his life, especially when he then also discovered Seventh-day Adventists and thought he would bring on both those legalisms onto himself. So he was worshiping on Saturday and Sunday just to make sure that he was correct. And ironically enough, uh, we called him Trent, but his birth name was Trinity. How about that? Wow. <laughs> Very good. Well, I don't want to, you, you've given us a great foundation to build this conversation on, and I don't want to get uh, too lost in the weeds with the, the crazy way my mind works. Uh, but but you're growing up, you went from denomination to denomination. My dad was an evangelist, and we traveled to all different kinds of denominations, mm. and he would preach at all different kinds of churches. And I couldn't help but think, as you were as you were telling us about your growing up years, uh, you were Southern Baptist, so you were once saved, always saved. Then you were Pentecostal, and you yep. probably got saved every Sunday night. Right, in church. Was constantly and, backsliding. Right, and then you were Calvinist, and you were predestined, so it didn't even matter anymore. <laughs> it was predestined to something, but, you know, strictly speaking, you can never really know what. Until you're yeah. Concerned. <laughs> that is that is absolutely beautiful awesome uh well uh what a what a what a great way to grow up so i guess the the natural follow-up question is what could you take away from those those three formative denominational experiences and where do you find yourself now when thinking about the trinity mm-hmm. yes I, I i find this to be two very separate questions um I would say that on a positive level, what I took from those years of being a denominational mutt was uh, rather than thinking of it as the persons of the Trinity, I, I tend to think of it as uh, will, will, heart, and mind. That, um, you know, in the Baptist church, I learned a lot of practical things about the mobilization of the will. There was this, you know, strong determination to, you know, evangelize the world and, you know, very specific and organized in intentional ways of doing things in the, in the Southern Baptist world. With the Pentecostals, of course, there was this great emphasis placed on, on the life of the heart. I mean, they, they cared about evangelism, too, actually. But, you know, it was very much about, you know, going to church, getting filled up, engaging your emotions in worshiping God and connecting to the divine, connecting to something uh, transcendent. And it was the Presbyterians who first taught me to care about the life of the mind in, um, in the Christian walk, even though I ultimately, you know, took what they taught me and went far afield of what they believe. It was, you know, that was the first denomination that I found myself in where the fact that I loved being kind of bookish and reading a lot was not a weird thing. And they, you know, encouraged asking questions, at least to a point. Uh, so there was this, you know, sort of life of the mind that was encouraged. But I would say that even back then as a kid, I also recognized the sort of um, downside of, of rank sectarianism, that you know, each of these, these churches, each of these denominations were convinced that they had a corner market on the truth. And they usually stopped short of saying that other people you know, were not uh, real Christians or were going to hell, but there was this clear sense of, yeah, but you know, they're not quite living into God's best. Uh, kind of like what my, uh, my, my queer friends were, would later say that they were told regardless of the denomination. We, you know, there was that kind of infighting amongst the denominations that, you know, you're, you're kind of missing it if, you, uh, if you're not evangelizing every weekend. You're kind of missing it if you're not speaking in tongues. You're kind of missing it if you're not a five-point Calvinist. And, you know, even then as a, a child and a teenager, 
I thought, well, you know, there is some really beautiful stuff, these really great gifts that you have, but you're, you're clutching onto them so tightly that it actually becomes uh, kind of ugly in a way. And so there was, I had this real heart growing up for unity, uh, trying to figure out a ground of unity. And that led me into a whole other field, which we may or may not even want to go into today, but it was, I was spent about a decade in this house church movement where we gathered in homes, we drew inspiration from our interpretation of, of the first century church and the way they gathered in open participatory meetings. They were simply Christians before denominations were a thing. And, you know, there was, there was some wishful thinking in that. There was also some really beautiful moments in all of that that were also formative for me. And it was through my house church connections that I was ultimately connected to um, a man who became one of the publishers of The Shack, um, this novel, The Shack, that came out in 2007. I love it. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, you know, by this point, I'd, I'd gone through uh, undergrad, through college. I was working in publishing as a writer and editor and a marketer. And I was connected with, uh, from my house church background, with uh, Wayne Jacobson, who was one of the uh, original co-publishers of The Shack. And, you know, he came to me and said, Mike, I have this, this manuscript. I think it's really special. I think it's going to do really well. You know, our goal is to see if maybe it could sell 50,000 copies. And if it could, then maybe we can get it sold, the film rights sold, and then it could be a movie, and then it, the message could really reach people. And... You know, you're laughing because you know 2020 hindsight just how well the shack did. At the time, I was laughing for an entirely different reason, which is that whenever a, you know, first-time or unknown author, whenever someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to sell 50,000 books, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, you and, and everybody else. Like, that's actually a pretty healthy number. It's uh, a great number uh, for anyone to sell, and it's not that easy. So I was like, I was kind of skeptical, but I was like, well, sure, Wayne, send me the manuscript. I'll, I'll check it out. I'll see what I think. And as I read it, and, you know, read the story that, of course, now is really well known for anyone familiar with it, of, um, you know, this, this man, Mac, who, who lost everything, and he had this confrontation in the very place of his pain with these, you know, very uh, idiosyncratic representations of, of the Father, Son, Spirit, as well as uh, Sophia, Divine Wisdom. Um, it, was, it was really mind-blowing and heart-opening to, for one, to see these sort of feminine representations of God Overwhelmingly so. I mean, you know, J Jesus is the only one who was unambiguously masculine. Uh, you know, Papa is is this um, you know African American woman. Sarayu is is the is Asian woman representing the Holy Spirit, and of course Sophia is also um, the divine feminine. And this sort of you know beautiful picture of mutual deference and mutual relationality of God that is written in this very devotional, accessible way was very moving. And, and of course, I, I quickly changed my tune. I said, well, I don't know if this will sell 50,000 copies or not, but I would love to be a part of the launch. So I, you know, I got to be a part of the launch of the shack. And weirdly enough, was this you know, back cover endorser sandwich between Michael W. Smith and, uh, and Winona uh, Judd. And like, what, what is my life right now? <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's still there. All all these printings later, 27 million copies later. 
But um, but that really began to form my idea of the Trinity, you know, not so much figuring out the divine math problem of it all, but sort of seeing this this interrelatedness of it all. And and that carried through, um, you know, through my spiritual journey of, you know, beginning to deconstruct maybe before it was cool. We're talking, you know, like late 90s, turn of the 20th century, turn of the 21st century. And um and some of the other work uh, that I did with event organizing brought me into contact with Father Richard Rohr. And eventually I um, began to get a couple of, uh, I forget if I have those literal CDs or not, but they were like a CD set of a couple conferences he did about the Trinity. One which was called The Divine Dance and the other which was called The Shape of God. And those were were kind of furthering that Trinitarian exploration, connecting it with Christian tradition, maybe more explicitly, but talking about how the Trinity um, is a, a almost like a hologram of this paradox of the one and the many, and how we as, as Christians confess that we're monotheistic, but we're not monotheistic in the exact same way that our Jewish and Muslim friends are, where they have, you know, more of a, a straightforward monotheism we have this weird claim that god is three in one and like why is that and i I just really connected with uh with father richard's teaching around that and you know working and publishing i wanted to see that put into book form i had a good friend uh, connected with a publisher that wanted to see it published and thankfully richard agreed and you know i began working with that source material and uh, lo and behold, we the divine dance, the Trinity, and your transformation was born. Mm, so good. So let's, Mike. I love everything you said there. Let's talk a little bit more about how the Trinity is portrayed in the Shack, and then how that relates in a more theological level in the writing that that you guys put forth in the Divine Dance. And specifically, I want to ask about perikinesis. If you mm-hmm. could take that, take that, uh, you know, fancy word, you know, and, sure. and break it down for our audience a little bit. Uh, exactly how do you see the relational, use, use, use that word in there, the relational being of the Trinity? How do, you, how, do you, how do you describe the inner workings of that as it relates to that? Sure, yeah, just a, just a real softball question there. Um, <laughs> hit a home run, hit a home run. Yes, yes. No, it's a great question, and I, and I should back up and say that while the shack was fiction, it was also deeply theologically informed. That you know, it was, it was formed by by Paul Young's own pain and his life story, which he has you know shared about in many venues. It's worth YouTubing if you haven't uh, heard him share about that before. But it also came through years of deep biblical reflection and, and theological studies, and you know, particularly connecting early on with um, a man named Baxter Kruger. And uh, later on through Brad Jersak, folks who are, are very conversant with uh, the, the origins of Trinitarian theology that are the same wellsprings that, that Father Richard and I draw from. But, um, yeah, so what's your, what's your question exactly? You were, you're asking about um, perichoresis. Yes. Yes. Yeah, perichoresis is, you know, it's a fancy, uh, fancy Greek word. And, you know, it, it stem, its earliest usage, um, as far as we can tell, comes from the, the Cappadocian fathers. And Cappadocia is this region of Turkey, which uh, Turkey is one of my, my ancestral homelands. I got to actually visit Cappadocia about five years ago on a uh, tour with Dr. Omid Safi, who is 
uh, part of Duke's Islamic Studies program, and he leads this beautiful tour through uh, Muslim and Christian and secular sites. Um, and it was just it's just life changing to go out there. The the, the topography of, of modern day Cappadocia is so beautiful and interesting and in a lot of ways untouched for for two thousand years. And it's a it's a very Greek influenced part of Turkey so much to the extent that there are apparently more intact Greek ruins in Cappadocia than there are in Greece. Wow. So, yeah, we, we stayed at a hotel that was kind of a replica of the, the cells that some of these monastic types would, uh, would stay in. And so, you know, back, back in that time, the, the Cappadocians were these brilliant um, monks and theologians, these sort of solitaries, and, or, or no, they weren't solitaries, they were in, they were in communities together, but they, they served the church and they were theologians who were thinking deeply about things. And so, you know, starting at this point in, in the fourth century, they begin grappling with what I alluded to earlier, which is, how is it that we as, as you know, uh, as Christians are, are claiming um, the God of Abraham, we're claiming this sort of monotheistic um, God, but we also, um, you know, see divinity clearly in, in Jesus Christ. We, we see him as divine, and we also take Jesus at his word when he says he's sending his Holy Spirit that is also somehow the Spirit of God. And as they were, were wrestling with that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that subsequently we, we do tend to try to turn it into a divine math problem, but perichoresis is this word that simply, that basically means like a circle dance. It means kinetic motion. And when they saw the divinity of, of creator and son and spirit together, they saw this dance. And, you know, if you're, uh, if you're dancing really fast and you're holding hands with people, you, you start to become one organism. You, you start to, you know, even if you're dancing in a partner dance, you know that if you're a good dancer, which, which I'm not, uh, I have two left feet. But That makes two of us. <laughs> I am told that in dancing, if you're good at it, <laughs> that, uh, you know, eventually you learn one another's rhythms and cues and body language and you're able to, to move as one. It's not that you, you cease to be a distinct individual, but you are also, um, you know, part of something greater than yourself. And these, these Cappadocians, they, they believe that they really hit on something about how, you know, there is a oneness in purpose and, and even a oneness in energy and essence. But there's also these three persons. There are these distinct modes of expression that have their own, you know, co-equal co arising with one another. And, you know, again, for them, it was very much wrapped up in a rhythm of prayer and community. It was never meant to be sort of abstracted as this propositional idea. It was a devotional and, and felt reality. But nonetheless, it was very influential on people like Athanasius and, you know, the, uh, the, the anti-Nicene anti fathers. And once you get into the Nicene Creed, you begin to have this articulation of God as Trinity become a part of the confession of, of the church, where, you know, sometimes when things become creeds, that's where they go to die. And, uh, and it feels like, you know, there's this wasteland uh, for many, many years where that's not really touched upon as this vital force. It becomes more of like anything else, like the nature of, you know, Jesus. Is he, you know, 50% divine and 50% human? Is he fully divine, fully human? Is he just a really cool guy? Is he just 
like, you know, there's all these different um, shades of meaning and perspective. And unfortunately, once people start getting, you know, weaponized power behind them, they begin killing each other over these distinctions, which I'm, I'm pretty sure that no God that's reflected in the image of Jesus of Nazareth would want to, uh, to endorse. So, you know, you see this kind of... Um, you know, tragedy play out. That's not unique to Christianity. Uh, I think it happens in, in all traditions. After a while, um, they begin to oppose the very spirit of their founders if they're not injected with fresh energy. And, of course, we see many such attempts throughout Christian history, various revival movements, various new monastic orders that are founded where people are attempting to return to the wellsprings, return to the source, and yet move things forward in a meaningful way. And I think that what we see happening now in the 21st century, and man, we need it more than ever, is this fresh uh, discovery of the relationality of God, of, of the unity within multiplicity that might be a lens that allows us to realize that we are also made in the image of this God. You know, as, as I think we, we engage in a little wordplay in the book, you know, not only are we created in the Imago Dei, but we're created in the Imago Trey. We're created in the image of the three-in-one, and therefore we have the capacity for deep relationship with one another in ways that do not rub out our individuality, but in ways in which enhance that. And I think that's a desperately needed message for, for Christianity and for humanity right now. Hey, my friends, we want to take a moment in the middle of this podcast to say thank you to all those of you who have subscribed on the Patreon platform. We're so grateful that you believe in the work that we're doing here at Prayerfully Woke, and we cannot thank you enough for your support. If you're listening and you're interested in supporting us financially, you want to be part of this Prayerfully Woke movement, you can check out the descriptions below for a link to find out how. Thanks. Now back to the episode. To bring it into layman's terms, like God is a holy relationship of three. And, you know, because we oftentimes will think of God in very monolithic terms, but but what you're saying is God is a relationship of three, and that relationship of three does not just stay within the confines of the Trinity, but has permeated into the whole universe. And so the ways in which, uh, you know, we experience life and the ways in which, uh, you know, even down to the molecular level, like like <laughs> this this tertiary um, concept is something that is not just found within the, within God, but because it's found within God, it permeates to the rest of creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's very well summarized. I think if I were to uh, if I were trying to avoid the the doctrine police, I'd probably rephrase your first sentence as that God is one God in three persons, and that that tension of confessing oneness while confessing multiplicity speaks to the possibilities uh, for us as a species and and the possibilities of the ways in which we see the universe. So like the we have one universe, but in infinite expression. You know, if we're, if we're going by the prevailing um, cosmology of today, the Big Bang, where we, we emit from this one singularity, and, we, and that singularity bursts ever outward into this world of manifestation and form, but did it ever cease to be that one point, or did it simply get bigger? 
And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, technically, philosophically, what I would be is a, a panentheist that I, I believe that, that there, there is, you know, a God and that God has personality and agency and being, but that God also, to use biblical language, is the all in all, that God permeates all things and all of reality. And yes, if we are confessing and perceiving a triune God, it makes sense that that pattern of relationship would show up in all things, for sure. Very good. So uh, I've heard throughout my life all different metaphors uh, for the Trinity, and I'll throw out one, and then you tell mm. me the problem with all of them. <laughs> okay. Might okay. Be grade, but go for it. Yeah, no, it'll be good. So God uh, or the Trinity is like uh, water in that you can put it in the freezer and it's ice, or you can boil it on the stove and it becomes mist, or you can turn on the sink and it flows out. And that's how God is a trinity. Um, he missed an ice and, and flowing water. So uh, how, how would you, let me ask it this way, how would you rather uh, describe the trinity? Earlier you told us it's a divine dance. Maybe you can unpack that a little more. Or if you have a different thing that comes to mind with that question, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that the um, the water metaphor is is great if you are a, a modalist or like our, our oneness Pentecostal friends. Because... Our one of those Pentecostal friends would say, yeah, sometimes God shows up as like the Father, and then sometimes God shows up as the Son, and sometimes God shows up as the Spirit. So if you're talking about boiling or freezing or pouring out a substance, uh, then it, it's more akin to that modalist understanding. There would have to be some way in which God could be frozen, solid, and vapor all at once to uh, to be orthodoxly uh, Trinitarian. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, if you had enough water, you could do all three of those things at the same time. I don't know what would happen if you put the, if you put the mist in front of the ice. Would it, would it become frozen or would it melt the ice? I don't know. It kind of makes my head hurt <laughs> thinking about it. Um, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that on YouTube there's a group called Lutheran Satire that has a pretty funny video roasting that and many other uh, Trinitarian uh, metaphors. And, and, and honestly, they probably care about dotting the I's and crossing the T's more than I do. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, uh, you know, not to be cheeky, but I think that my favorite metaphor probably is the dance because I can imagine, um, you know, three people dancing in a circle together. And, and then if I focus my eyes just right, it's kind of like watching a ceiling fan, right? Like I can see individual blades when I'm watching a ceiling fan. But once I turn the fan on and once the fan's really doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is cooling the room, those, those, those blades, while I can still make them out in, in their distinct form if I really train my eye, I'm seeing one, one fluid motion. I'm seeing one purpose and one intention and one action in the blade. And, you know, similarly, uh, if, if uh, you know, God has these mad, mad dance skills and is in this uh, circle dance holding hands, um, that yes, I can see things that seem particularly uh, like Abba, and I can see some things that are particularly like uh, Yeshua, and I can see some things that are particularly like Ruah or Spirit. Uh, but I think that they're also you know, so united in heart and purpose and, uh, and intentionality that there's this real oneness to, to what it is that they're, they're doing. So I think that's my metaphor. If I were to try to break it down any more than that, I'm sure I'd be being heretical in one way or another. That's great. That was uh, great. Mike, let's talk about the second half of the subtitle of your book, The mm. Trinity and Your Transformation. I want to talk about how, the, how, how a greater understanding of the Trinity impacts our life. 
you know, because, uh, you know, we told you before the show started, our, the name of our podcast is Prayerfully Woke, and that kind of has a social justice undertone to it. You know, mm-hmm. on this podcast, we're not just interested in, in head knowledge, but taking that and applying it. And so, so how do you, I guess you could say it like this, we're invited to the dance, right? Yes. You know, some people out there may may not have, you know, may not have been invited to the homecoming <laughs> dance whenever they, or the prom or whatever, whenever, but we're all invited to the dance. We're all invited to participate in this relational uh, God that we serve. So how yeah. does that lead to transformation in our life? Mm-hmm. I, I'm so glad that you asked that question because sometimes when I'm, you know, just talking about the book, uh, we don't go there into the second half. And, you know, I have to say that while um, the Divine Dance was, of course, the name of a, of a conference that, that Father Richard um, produced, that the subtitle was my idea. And it was, uh, you know, it, it came about because I did see the practical consequences of, of seeing God as Trinity in this way as producing transformation. I, I feel like it has produced um, transformation in my life. I, I would say that I personally stumbled upon this in a roundabout kind of way uh, almost 10 years ago when I began doing both um, men's rites of passage work as well as the sort of um, relationship boot camp, the sort of authentic relating boot camp. And in, in both of these experiences, which were distinct in many ways, but what they had in common was they more deeply took me into um, an honest relationship with myself and like a real accounting of my life and my being and who I am and what I want in the world, as well as an, uh, a real way to kind of sense into the feelings and presence of others and kind of, you know, spending time with another person and, you know, just like we are here right now, just kind of seeing you and, and hearing your questions, but also, you know, because we're on video, witnessing your body language, like looking at your eyes and take a moment to really, you know, be able to, to just be with you. And so when we're working on the divine dance, uh, what Father Rich and I were talking about was both the incredible strength and beauty of classic Christian contemplative exercises, things like centering prayer, you know, ways of, of, of the individual connecting directly to God, but also what is at least um, attempted in church as we know it, like gathering as people, as social beings, and what might even be able to be deepened in that. So, you know, that if we take the idea of God as relationship seriously, and we take the idea that we are reflect, we are created um, to reflect the nature of this relationship seriously, then what might be intentional practices that we can do with each other that will enable us to sort of actualize that that Trinitarian dynamism, as it were, um, in in our lives. And that's work that really animates me. I mean, pre-pandemic, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing is working with various groups of people, some in a church context, some in a totally, you know, quote-unquote secular context, where we do group exercises with two people, three people, five people, and we really invite people to sort of drop in and be aware of their own boundaries, where they might be holding back, what they might be willing to open up to, and what they don't want to open up to, but they can be aware of that, hey, I have a boundary here, and to really begin to explore the places where our boundaries meet each other. And so, you know, some of these exercises are in the back of the divine dance, and if someone's listening today and they don't, you know, have the money to plunk down on a book, or if they want additional supplemental exercises, 
I actually give away a free download uh, Divine Dance bonus chapter on my blog. So if folks go to, to mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter, there's a chapter there where I describe this really profound personal experience I had with God as Trinity that really had me look at my relationships in a whole new light, my human relationships. But in the back of it, we also include a few chapters from the book itself, but in the back we include um, some exercises. Some of them are exercises that can be found in the divine dance itself, and some of them are exercises that we actually haven't shared anywhere else, but they're ones that I use um, in facilitating these kinds of experiences. Because, yes, it's such a good question. Absolutely, I don't want this to simply be a neat new theological hobby horse, as inspiring as it might be, but to say, how do we really work this in our own lives? How can we really be present to each other's joy and pain in such a way that, that's really honoring the, the Trinitarian structure of our lives. That's so good. That's so good. And I'm going to try to transition that uh, to a question that I wanted to ask you, because it's cool to be invited to a dance, but it matters who invites you. Mm. And, and I've heard you talk about uh, how Jesus has led us away uh, from a Zeusian God. You know, and I grew up with an understanding, the wrong understanding, that God was a mean ogre in the sky, but he had a super nice son <laughs> named Jesus. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself, you know, in, in some kind of mystical workings, God's not allowed to kill me now because <laughs> of yep. because of Jesus. And I really don't believe that's an oversimplification no. as, a, as, as a six or eight or ten year old. That's really what I believed. Yeah. So. Same. Uh, w- with with the importance of, of a Trinitarian view, how does the word becoming flesh help us to see the nature of the divine dance, if you will? Mm-mm. That's such a good question because, um, you know, not all trinities are created equal. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that, you know, overwhelmingly we had a positive response to our book because anyone that was going to pick it up was probably predisposed to, you know, want to hear what we were exploring. But, um, but the Gospel Coalition, uh, which is a, a sort of a Calvinist conglomeration, they wrote a pretty scathing review, and a few other folks wrote pretty scathing reviews. And they were basically saying that we were insufficiently Trinitarian. And at least in some cases, what they meant by that was that they had this very um, subordinationist view of the Trinity, by which the Trinity was this traditional uh, you know, evangelical Christian family that had God the Father up, up top and was, you know, giving orders to God the Son and keeping him, you know, keeping him on the straight and narrow. And then somehow, you know, the Holy Spirit is then obedient to, uh, to the, the Son. And so it's this very top-down, like, a, like a, instead of a, maybe a triangle or a circle dance, it was more like a, just like a little flow chart that was, you know, <laughs> here's, where the, uh, here's where the authority goes to. And, of course, from there it goes to the man as the head of the house and then, you know, to the women and the children. It's this perfect little, you know, hierarchical ordering of, of all reality that, that fits in with the, the fantasies of uh, insecure fundamentalist men everywhere. And um, so, you know, and, and that... And, and that Technically, and I don't get to say this very often, but that technically is heresy, uh, you know, according to a Christian uh, confession. In fact, that was the big, um, 
split in, in the in the ten ten hundreds between the, the the Latin Church that what became the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church was whether the Holy Spirit um, you know proceeds from the Father and Son or only proceeds from the Son and you know only proceeding from the Son implies this this sort of hierarchy whereas proceeding from both Father and Son implies this unity and it was the Eastern Church the Orthodox Church that were emphasizing the unity and it was the Latin Church that very subtly was emphasizing the hierarchy. And it planted the seeds for these, you know, Calvinist folks these days who are, are all about the, uh, the hierarchy. And I say all that to say that you could, you know, as you know, you can technically believe in the Trinity like most of us grew up while still having this sort of tyrant or ogre or Zeusian, uh, you know, God that's at the head. And either, like you said, um, Jesus manages to do some magical spell that tricks the Father into, you know, not killing us. Uh, or, and or, and I think, honestly, I saw the, this more in Calvinist circles, it was sort of like, um, it was sort of like they uh, ended up, gosh, there are all these noises going on, sorry about You're that. You're a popular guy. Yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> that, that Jesus actually wasn't quite as nice as, you know, some of the evangelists would say he was, that, you know, Calvinism basically said, no, nah, look, it's still God the Father's world, it's still the Mosaic law, yeah, you know, you can technically get under this covenant of grace, uh, but, you know, it's just the few who are chosen, and it's still a pretty strict path. It was like, you know, the character of the son was being constrained by this, you know, hierarchical over, overruling father who, you know, really, really set the tone. I, you know, I had some Calvinists tell me that it was not theologically correct to say that God loves everyone uh, because God has, you know, that love has very specific theological meaning and that you can only really say that God loves the elect. Uh, so, you know, you kind of get into all of these um, restrictions if you take some of these ideas to their logical conclusion. And so, yes, I don't know if this answers your question, but for me, seeing um, the Trinity as this sort of co-equal circle dance implies, um, you know, a father and son who are not a uh, bad cop and good cop, who are, you know, doing the, the shakedown of humanity, where Jesus is like, I love you so much, receive my love, because you don't want me to let that guy in here. He's not right. loving. Right. Uh, you know, I've seen a I've seen a meme of of Jesus knocking on the door. You know, there's that classic picture of Jesus knocking on the door of somebody's heart. But mm -hmm. the 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 verbiage of the meme is "Let me in," uh, because you don't want to know what I'll do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's this very uh, yeah, this very bifurcated image of God that that so many people have, sadly, in in yeah. Western Christianity, and uh, it's it's created a real. A real sickness, I think, in our, our culture, and it enables some people to make really uh, consequential social and, and political decisions that are really are detrimental to our fellow image bearers, whether we're talking about the human world or, or the non-human world. So, so just a quick follow-up question, because I've heard you talk briefly about the Zeusian god mm -hmm. and the Dr. Seussian god, <laughs> where either, either nothing goes or everything goes. <laughs> and 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 yeah. where do you see the line uh, in between those two extremes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, well, bless you. You must have done a deep dive into either my writings <laughs> or podcast interviews for that. Because while I think I have the Zeusian, Seussian bit in an original draft of Divine Dance, I don't think it made made it through the uh, the cutting room floor. The editors who thought it was just a little too plenty for their tastes. I like but, it. 
But yes, if, if the Zeusian god is this sort of stern, austere, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry god, hyper-Puritan, uh, you know, machismo fantasy, then the Zeusian god is the is probably more of a uniquely American creation, though it has now been exported around the world. And it was kind of the shadow side of some of the Pentecostalism that I grew up with, the kind of name-it-claim-it god, the god, kind of god who just wants you to be, you know, wealthy and healthy and happy. Even technically think that God doesn't want us to be have, have abundant life, which has physical and, and practical uh, ramifications to it. But uh, it's an overemphasis on our own, you know, needs and, and whims against that of which ultimately serves our soul's growth. So I don't think the line is you take uh, an anything-goes God and a really stern God, and then again you try to create this Hegelian uh, dialectic between the two. The sort of, to use our earlier law of three analogy, the, the third force God that I see, or the holy reconciling image of God that I see, is, you know, this is a, this is a cliche, a Christian cliche that I actually buy into, which is that, that God loves you just as you are, but also loves you too much to leave you there. Uh, I actually think that's true if it's not trying to be uh, coerced by human manipulative uh, behavior code enforcement. Because I, I do think that there is a, a path that creates greater wholeness and sanity and coherence. And some of my brethren who are deconstructing um, are rightly uh, enjoying their, their freedom. And I think that once one enjoys freedom to its very limits, one finds that it's not very freeing in the end. If it doesn't create, you know, to go back to this idea of a truly awakened people, that, you know, to, to be awake means to, to have a choice. And I find it hilarious in the sort of Calvinist versus Arminian theological debates where they talk about does or doesn't humanity have free will? My take on that is that we certainly have will, but it, most of us it is not developed sufficiently to the point where we can truly say that it is free. Mm, but, that it, it's, it's sort of comical, really, to think that we have that most of us are walking around having free will. We are influenced by the time and the culture and the occasion of our birth. We're influenced by um, every choice that we make, including many choices that are made for us. There's actually a lot, you know, in Gurdjieffian language, there are a lot of, of laws that we're under. There's just a lot of inertia in reality, um, even on a mundane level, to say nothing about, you know, principalities and powers and gods and devils and all of this sort of thing. So to say that we are um, free, that's an aspiration, I think, rather than a reality. And I think it is an aspiration that we rightly can aspire to. If, you know, Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and that there is this abundant living that's available to us. And so I think that, you know, a non-Zeusian, non-Zeusian God um, has generosity and acceptance as a, as a non-negotiable baseline, and also has a path, if we so choose, to where we can begin to develop our will in cooperation with grace, and we can begin to, to actually hone true being. Awesome. Great answer. The, the last question I have for you, Mike, and you've been so gracious with your time. We appreciate you. Uh, the last question I have is, you know, there's a lot of, of Christians that will give credit to one one portion of the Trinity, you know, they say, they'll say, Jesus will never leave me or forsake me, or the Holy Spirit did something for me, or the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. How do we get a better view of the Trinity's work? How do we better recognize the Trinity in our day-to-day -day life? Do you have any advice for us? 
Mm, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, the first step is to recognize the inherent um, projection in, in what you just said, that we might, uh, we might be blaming one member of the Holy Spirit or, or one member of the Trinity or another for, you know, particular actions or predilections that we ourselves might have. And, you know, I really think that, you know, kind of going back to that earlier, looking at, um, I don't know, maybe will and heart and, and law giving, so to speak, as ways in which we might gravitate dispositionally towards our image of one member of the Trinity or another. It's an important excavation work to, to look at in terms of our character development. And, you know, for me, I would say that that the, the healthy the healthy part of when I shifted from maybe being even strictly um, Christocentric to Trinity centric was that I began to see my own participation in the life of the Trinity more fully. That you know, just as the law of three gives birth to a fourth and a new arising, the whole idea of, of the three in the Trinity is that we, that humanity or creation itself, is invited in as the sort of fourth. We're invited in. To, to fully participate. And when I began to see the, the, the dynamic motion of the Trinity uh, more fully, I was able to see how rather than, you know, say praying to Jesus, that, that I, I'm praying, uh, that I'm praying through Jesus, or I'm, I'm standing in the place, uh, in, in the position of Jesus, uh, that I'm speaking directly to creator, directly to source, in the place, uh, you know, as God's beloved son and through the power of the spirit. And I was able to sort of actualize that dynamic if I'm doing, say, intercessory prayer, if I'm, if I'm dialoguing with God or if I'm asking for something that I'm beginning to enter in. That's a practical way in my imagination that I can enter the Trinitarian flow, that I can see myself as, as uh, occupying this place where that Jesus seems to want us to occupy, where he says, you know, that you you are our friends and you are brothers and that you will even do greater things than I have done in God, John's gospel, he says. And so there's this idea that we're, we're fully invited to be what, you know, etymologically is a little Christ, uh, is a Christian. Um, and that we don't do this on our own, that we do this through the, you know, the, the flowing and the, the ready availability of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is a connection that I can cultivate in contemplative prayer practices and that I can simply approach, um, you know, the, the Father as Jesus tells us to address him, which is a, a revolutionary uh, way of, of speaking about God. There's a sort of the Abba, uh, it's a very intimate term. And so that, that's one way of, of addressing your, your question. I hope that's, that's helpful. Oh, that's, that's great. That's a great practice that, that we can try and our listeners uh, can, can begin to focus in on. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Mike, I have one last question for you. Okay. What does prayerfully woke mean to you? Mm. Getting a little free branding consulting here, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I think that um, it, when I when I consider the, the terms prayerfully and the terms woke, um, I I think of um, of waking up, and I think of how do I do that, and with an expanded understanding of prayerfully rather than simply being a, a petition, um, although it can certainly be that. But as an expansion of consciousness, like I can be prayerfully engaging this dialogue with you two right now, which means that I'm I'm opening up more of myself to the possibility of wonder, to the possibility of, of moving you, to the possibility of me being moved, 
And that's what I want to do if I'm, I'm living prayerfully, whether it's in conjunction with God or with myself or with my neighbors or with the natural world. There's this you know, place where I can let more in. And to be woke is, you know, of course, we, we almost always use that term tongue-in-cheek these days. But I remember um, when the term really was being promulgated by, you know, specific activists and, and people of color as saying, man, I, I was going, I was under the illusion that I knew how things were. And then I got woke. Like, then I knew um, what a predicament that we're in, what, what, a, what a dire straits that we are in, and, and having my eyes opened up to the matrix, so to speak, um, you know, gave me a, a lever and a place to stand. It gave me a, a place from which to change everything. And so for me, if I were, uh, you know, being prayerfully woke, it would mean that sort of open-hearted engagement with the, the goal of getting out of my habitual way of seeing uh, and accept what is, which could include how ugly and awful some things are, and it could also be being woke to how beautiful um, other things are and, and how to, you know, really awaken to those more beautiful possibilities that I know we all want to work toward. That is so good, so good. We so much appreciate that. And uh, you've already told us about your blog, and, and, and if you can repeat that again for us. Sure. And, and, and any other way that our listeners could connect with you or, or read some of your your articles, or I, I assume that, you you know, obviously the Divine Dance is on Amazon. Anything you want to promote right now, we want to give you some space. Yeah. We so sure. much appreciate your time, uh, and we want our listeners to be able to dig in more. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I would love to uh, connect with any of you listening further. You know, the, the online repository of my writings and even archive of various podcast interviews, etc., can be found on my, my website, mikemorell.org.org. And again, you know, if you would like to get this bonus chapter of The Divine Dance that has a number of exercises that uh, would be great for solo practice and group practice in the middle of your quarantining or your sheltering in place, you can go to mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter. And really the links from my, my blog will take you to most of the places you can find me online, including, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc., and the only other thing I would say is if you happen to be listening to this and you are an author or a publisher and you want to do a really powerful book launch with a circle of progressive Christian bloggers, people who like um, reviewing books in this intersection of faith and culture, you can head over to thespeakeasy.info and you can find out more about how to do your book launch. And for that matter, though, if you're a, uh, a podcast host, hello, or a blogger, and you would like access to some of these authors um, to review their books uh, and to get, to get free books, you can also sign up as a reviewer at thespeakeasy.info. Awesome. I love that, man. We'll have all of that down in the description below uh, for you listeners to be able to access all that to, to get uh, connected with Mike. Mike, we appreciate you, man, for all your time today. It's been, it's really been a blessing, man. It was a great conversation. Likewise. Thank you to both of you too. And thanks everybody for listening. God bless you and peace.